Thank you for joining us today for the Restoration Church podcast. This is the sixth in our United series, and it is titled, Which Side Are You On? Hope you enjoy. Um, but, uh, but I do want to, I want to do a little bit of test. I think it will help us kind of put some of this together. So uh, to prove to you how we have a tendency to pick sides and try to go to different, different places. I'm going to try to use this remote today. We'll see if it works. If it doesn't, it works right now, which means it won't work in a few minutes. But uh, the, the question I want to ask you is, which side are you on? Now, that is a scary question for me to ask you uh, as of today's culture in this moment. But uh, we're going to start out with a few different things other than what you might expect and uh, what I would not be brave enough to ask you. But... <laughs> um, so the first thing I want to ask you is, uh, raise your hand if you are Coke Diet Coke. Raise your hand. Anybody Coke Diet Coke? All right. Versus, and then now you can raise your hand if you are Pepsi Diet Pepsi. Anybody? Pepsi Diet Pepsi. All right. There's a few of you in here. All right. For those of you who are in the investments and you're trying to have some good investments, you may want to take note of the, uh, the audience poll there. Uh, the, uh, all right. So let's do another one. All right. I want you to raise your hand. Uh, if you are, we're going to do the Ford Chevy thing, so we'll, we'll do another, we'll throw in another maybe as well, but raise your hand if you're Ford, Ford, we got some Ford folks in here, all right, put your hands down, raise your hand if you're Chevy, all right, and then raise your hand for something else, all right, all right, we've got man, a lot of different groups in here, okay, all right, this, that, now that was kind of fun, now we're going a little bit personal, all right, uh, raise your hand if you're Star Trek, all right, raise your hand if you're Star Wars, all right. All right, the sanctification process is working on most of you. All right, that's good. All right, uh, uh, let's see, let's see. Um, anything else we could do on, uh, along those lines that might be, might be kind of interesting? No, we're going to stop there. So we, we as a, we as a, what's that? Oh, see, I wasn't going to go there, but now you get there. All right, let's do it. All right, if you are Carolina, raise your hand. All right, if you're, if you're Duke, raise your hand. All right, and I think that's all the schools in the area. Is that right? Just joking, just joking, just joking. <laughs> NC State, give it up. All right, here we are. We're going to so much right here. Yeah, I like to do that just to bug you. All right, I would do Auburn and Alabama, but only uh, myself and Casey and my family would be allowed to stand up in that scenario. But um, that's where I'm from. I'm from Alabama, so we pick one of those two. Y'all don't understand. Never mind. Uh, so <laughs> some of you understand. Some of you understand. So we like, to, we like to choose sides, right? We like to, to pick different uh, sides to be on. And we see that in our culture. We see that in fun ways. We see that in more serious ways, right? Uh, we see our culture dividing up over lots of important issues. Uh, maybe we see that happening in our world. We see that happening in our nation. Maybe even see it happening in your home. Uh, maybe division not only devi- defines our, our, us as humans, but sometimes it has a tendency to define us in our homes and our lives. Uh, we divide up over our, our political issues. Uh, we divide up sometimes over our view of proper economic approaches or political ideas or political candidates. Uh, we divide up over church, church styles, uh, music styles. Uh, some of us uh, think uh, hip-hop is the best new art form there is. Some of us are like, well, I don't get it. I don't understand. Uh, some of us can't wait to turn on the country western station and hear the latest. Uh, some of us have taste. I mean, uh, uh, uh <laughs> Uh, sorry, I let, my, let that out. Um, uh, that wasn't supposed to happen. Uh, some of us like different things, right? We all have different preferences, and, uh, we, but we can be divided by, by that, those different opinions and those different ideas uh, that we walk in here with. You may walk in here and you see the desperate need in our world for unity. Uh, you want to see people come together, and you see that opportunity needs to happen in our world. 
Uh, you see that needs to happen in the church. You want to see unity happen in the church. Uh, can you imagine if all believers were unified in vision and purpose right now? If we were all effectively uh, in pursuit of impact around the mission God's given, what would that be like if the church, Big C, across the world was unified on the mission of God? Mind-blowing, right? What would it look like in our nation right now if we were able to strike a chord of unity? What would that be like? Uh, maybe you seek unity in your, in your home. Maybe the unity you're looking for today is uh, between you and your family. Maybe it's some, a kid that's, that's uh, estranged you haven't talked to in several years. Or when you do, it's just checking a box because you're supposed to. Uh, maybe it's in your marriage. Uh, you want to see unity happen in your marriage. So whether it's something kind of silly like Coke or Pepsi or hip-hop or country-western, or whether it's the serious issues we face every day, we are a people that see a desperate need for unity. Paul's going to talk to us in Ephesians chapter 4 about how we discover unity. Now, we're not going to say everything about unity today, but we are going to look a little bit at how Paul helps us uh, dig in and understand what does unity mean uh, in the context of what he's been saying. So we're going to start in in verse 1, and it's going to help us give a little bit of context uh, to the text that we're going to work through a little bit more carefully. In Ephesians chapter 1, uh, of chapter 4, verse 1, what Paul does, he says, uh, as you see on the screen, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, uh, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So by calling, he's talking about your position, your position in Christ. Now, if you've been paying attention or you've been here and been able to read it or maybe you've read Ephesians in the past and noticed it, the book of Ephesians, uh, the first three chapters, are all about our position in Christ or our unity with Christ. It starts in the very beginning in chapter 1 in the early verses and extends all the way through the end of chapter 3 talking about who you are if you are a follower of Jesus, what it means to be connected in unity with Jesus. It uses all kinds of word pictures like a building. Um, Later it's going to use the word picture of marriage, a husband and a wife living in union. It even uses the word picture, uh, and it's going to extend this word picture in chapter 4 a little bit, of a body, of different body parts being in union with each other and in union with a head. Our union with Christ is the number one big idea of the book of Ephesians. So what Paul is saying is because of this position you have, it should impact how you walk or how you live. So let's reflect a little bit of what we've discovered. What is ours in Christ? We share in Christ all the things that God provides or intends for Christ. Because we are one with Christ, because we are hidden in Christ, we are in Him, we possess all the things that Christ possesses. Uh, That's what Ephesians teaches us. In in chapter 1, it talks about us having his blessings. We share in the blessings in Christ. All the blessings that God has for Christ, he has for you. We share in the inheritance of Christ. We share in the power of Christ. We share in the position of Christ. We share in literally the throne of Christ. Even the glory of Christ we share in. Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 clearly describes to us the, the amazing benefit we have as being in union with Jesus Christ. That's our position. That's who we are. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you have in in faith accepted the grace he provides to us in Christ, then the Bible says that because you are in Christ, you are one with Christ. Everything the Father has, everything that God God has for Jesus, he has for you. That is the most amazing, mind-blowing description of grace that I can imagine. Ephesians has been teaching that for three chapters so far. And then we get into chapter 4, verse 1. He wants us to walk in this way that's worthy of that position. So if that's who we are and that's all that we have, 
How would you expect someone to live who is the son of God, a prince of God? How would you, how would you expect someone to live who has all the spiritual blessings in heavenly places? How would you expect someone to live who is one with Christ, sitting on the throne of Christ, with Christ? A co-heir, a co-regent with Jesus. How would you expect someone to live who has the full power and presence and glory of Jesus himself living inside of them? Paul's saying, I want you to live in a way that you would expect someone to live who's in union with Jesus Christ. And then he's going to start giving us a few details of what that looks like. He's going to talk about, first, unity, and go through several different texts, several different verses to help us wrap our minds around what does it mean to have true unity? Where does unity come from? What does it look like? Interestingly enough, he starts our discussion, he starts our, uh, our process by telling us that unity requires less than you think. So what do we mean by that? Let's read it, uh, a text together. Diane, I'm going to depend on you going forward if you don't mind says this, it's in chapter, chapter 4, verses 1. We'll kind of pick up with the word walk, and then he gives us on into verse 2 and 3. Walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So how do we live? The first thing he goes to is these three words, humility, gentleness, and patience. And these are the three key ideas that he uses to describe. These are words that describe how we are to live in a way that reflects the expectations of someone who's in Christ. Humility, gentleness, and patience. I, uh, as you think about a good definition for, for humility and gentleness and patience, it's impo- important to look at other texts. But before we do that, what would you think of as the next answer, the most likely answer to the question that he, he kind of raised in verse 1? I want you to live your life in a way that's worthy of the position of being in Christ. I don't know about you, but I don't know that this is what I would have come up with. Like my list of things that would have probably, uh, you know, if you would have given me a piece of paper, a little survey, you need to live in a way that's worthy of your position in Jesus Christ. I'm going to come up with 10. I'm going to write 10 different things down. The first thing on the list probably isn't, on, uh, isn't one of these. I might not even get to one of these on my top 10 because I have a tendency to think of all the things I'm not supposed to do, right? We have a tendency to start there. I'm not supposed to do this. I'm not supposed to do this. We get into the Ten Commandments, all of which are valid, all of which are important. But I find it very interesting that the first thing out of Paul's mouth, so to speak, or, or quill maybe, um, is that if we are going to walk or live in a way that's reflective of the position we have in Jesus Christ, the first thing he focuses on is unity and how we live in unity through humility, gentleness, and patience. As we look at a great definition for, for humility, sometimes it's great to look at what Greek words means. Other times it's great to just look at a text that helps us understand humility if you have your Bibles, look at chapter 2. This isn't going to be on the screen, so if you have a Bible, you may want to turn there. If not, uh, use your auditory skills and, and listen to chapter 2, verse 2 with me in Philippians. This is how Paul describes humility in a similar passage. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Unity, right? Maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Okay, what does humility mean? Regard one another as more important than yourselves. That means that you matter more than I do. 
That means when you look across the room, the person to the left of you and the right of you and in front of you and behind you matter to you more than you matter to you. That's what humility is. Humility is meaning that I matter, means that I matter less. That's why unity requires less than we think. When we look at the word gentleness, or some translations may say the word meekness, it means to be in control. It means I, I am like a horse that's bridled. It's actually the same word that's often used in that same era to describe a bridled horse. A horse that's really strong and really powerful. They could run you through a wall. A muscle-bound horse, but it's a bridled horse. What does that mean? It means that horse is under control. It means that horse does the will of its master. That's what meekness and gentleness ultimately are. It means that instead of saying something, I say nothing. It means that when I'm really ticked off and I want to prove to you how wrong you are, I say less. It means I say less. Sometimes it means I do less. Sometimes it means I win less. You want to have a great marriage, stop worrying about winning arguments. If you want to be in great relationships with people, start worrying about winning the wars and winning the little battles. Meekness means I win less. I matter less and I win less. And then patience, of course, is us being patient with one another. And then he goes on to describe a little bit in chapter 3, in verse 3 again, uh, what does it mean to do these well? And I think he's especially focusing in on patience. Bearing with one another in love, or you may see this, or he said translation, or good, a good way to translate this was put up with each other in love. Now this isn't, when we say put up with each other in love, we're not saying in a loving way. The Bible uses a different word than, than, what, than love to describe in a loving way or a charitable way. Love is always a sacrificial, self-sacrificing, unconditional action towards someone. It means when I do things that are for you before I do them for me. So through that spirit or mindset of self-sacrificing love, I am to put up with you. And you are to put up with me. We are to put up with each other. It is a word that implies how annoyed we have a tendency to get with one another. As a person who spent uh, six days in Disney World, let me tell you, I understand the value of what it means to put up with people when they annoy you. There are kids running in front of you, cutting in line, want to kick them out of the way. This is Disney World. Let me have my magic. So this, that's what the word means. Put up with each other. Because you love each other with that unconditional, self-sacrificing love, put up with each other. Put up with each other's idiosyncrasies. Put up with that little thing that that person does that annoys you. Put up with that, that personality trait that drives you crazy. Put up with each other. And then, be eager to maintain, or continually be eager, or do your best is literally what the word means. To, to maintain, to keep maintaining to uni the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And this is a word that's a, a present tense verb in Greek. Now, uh, we try not to do too much Greek here, but here's, what it, here's why we bring that up. It's because it means to keep doing something over and over and over and over. So, constantly maintain eagerness. Constantly maintain the unity of peace. It means there's something you have to work at. Something you have to do over and over and over. Now, if that doesn't apply to the church, it definitely applies to marriage, right? You can't, just, you can't just wait and go, I'm going to try to work on the peace one day. You have to stay focused on maintaining the bond of unity and peace in your marriage every single day, in your family every single day, between your siblings every single day. You have to focus on consistently maintaining the bond that you have in the Spirit. And then it says of peace, and I think it would be better to translate that through peace. By focusing on keeping peace, I'm always going to try to keep peace between us. As we wrap this up around the big idea of humility, 
I like how Dennis Max, the author, says what humility is. Pride is asking others, could you be wrong? Humility is asking ourselves, could I be wrong? What Paul is saying is that, you, you, that unity starts with humility. It's us doing less than we think. It's us mattering less. It's us speaking less. It's us winning less. The next thing we see is unity is a reality we accept, not, a, not an objective we attain. Look in verse 4. There's one body and one spirit. And I'm going to pause there because it's important to see what, what happens here in this story that Paul's writing us, or this, this letter Paul's writing us. He says, you need to work hard to keep this, this bond of the spirit through peace. You need to work hard at it. You need to stay working at it. You work on it all the time. And then he immediately begins to describe some of the things we share in common. And these aren't things that we should attain to, by the way. These aren't things that we try to make happen. These are realities about you and us. These are realities about all of us who follow Jesus. There is one body and one spirit. Then he makes a little comment about why there's one spirit. Just as you were called to the one that, that um, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. And then he gets back to his list. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. One way to look at this is that we share a body. We share the Spirit. We share a Spirit. We share the Spirit. We share the Lord. We share the faith. We share the baptism. And we share God as our Father who is over us all and is in us all. Now, that body analogy is helpful to me when I think about unity. Because I may have some internal disagreements. But overall, I stay in unity with myself. That sounds really weird, but follow me for a second. So if you ever tried to decide where you're going to go to eat and struggled with that decision, like you individually, we do that in the, in the car all the time. And sometimes that doesn't maintain unity. But me as an individual, I will leave my place of work. I will walk out the door, and I work at the, uh, um, the Apple store. So uh, you walk out of the Apple store, and to the right there are restaurants, and to their left there are restaurants. And uh, I will walk out of the store if I'm going to go eat at a restaurant, and I will go to the right for a little ways, and I'll go, I'm going to go over here and get a burger. No, you know what, I'm going to go over, I'm, I'm going to get some Chick-fil-A up at the food court. No, you know what I'm going to do, I'm going to uh, get some Cheesecake Factory, that sounds good. And literally, I may go back and forth some days three or four times. If somebody was standing watching me, they'd think I was a crazy person. And we do have a few of them that come in our store, so I would fit kind of well. But, um, so, so I am in my own mind dialoguing back and forth with my own self about what I'm going to do. Now, do I maintain unity in that scenario? Of course I do. I'm just talking back and forth with my own, with, in my own mind. But because I am for the, the, from a biological perspective, I am for, the, uh, for sustaining my own existence, ultimately I come to a place of unity, even in the space of my own mental disagreement. That's how we help understand what unity looks like in the body of Christ. It doesn't mean we don't disagree. It doesn't mean we don't have dialogue. It doesn't mean we don't have conflict sometimes. But at the end of the day, we have one mission, one focus, one obsession, and that allows us to maintain unity. He says we have one Lord, one faith. Uh, it's probably referring to the faith in what he has been talking about in chapter 1 through 3, our faith in the gospel, our trust in what Christ has done for us. He continues to go through and gives us this list of several things that help us define what unity is and where unity really comes from. But I want us to pause for a second. What do we add to this list? I want you to answer out loud. 
But I want you to think for a second what you may have a tendency to add to this list. And I do think in our unique season that we're in, it's important for us to reflect on what we add to this list. For, for Paul, this was enough for unity. For Paul, it was enough for unity to speak to our relationship with the Trinity, the Spirit, our Lord Jesus, the Son of God and the Father. It was enough for him to speak of these simple things as what gives us unity. What binds us together, what makes us the same. And remember, he's not saying we should attain these things. These aren't things that we try to pursue. We shouldn't, as believers, think we've got to pursue having one Lord. No, we already have one Lord. We already have one faith. We already have one baptism. We already have one God. It is all true of us. And these are the things that should set supreme as the filter of unity for those who follow Jesus Christ. We may disagree about political candidates. We may disagree about political views. We may disagree about church preferences or music styles or Bible translations or about whether somebody should go see this kind of movie or that kind of movie. We may disagree about a lot of different things, but nothing should should break the bind that pulls us together other than the things that are listed here. These are the things that help us know what defines unity for those who follow Jesus Christ. And what Paul is saying is that because we have these most important, most core issues together, we can move forward in unity as a, as a family, as a community. Nothing else should define us. It reminds me of a quote from uh, Nicholas Zinzendorf. Nicholas Zinzendorf was a um, started the Moravia movement, it was kind of the head of the Moravia movement, if you guys have been over to Greensboro and uh, looked at any of the Moravian historical artifacts. Uh, the Moravia movement was actually a, a pretty significant spiritual, a very significant, maybe the most spiritual, significant spiritual awakening that happened in the United States. History. Uh, it, is, it is valued mostly by not only how God worked through his spirit immediately in the people that were, uh, that were uh, kind of part of the teaching of Zinzendorf, Uh, but it was also impacted in the missionary movement that started from it. Here's what he said. Preach the gospel, die, and and be forgotten. You see, for Zinzendorf, there's one thing that mattered. He wasn't so concerned about people's different views and different preferences and different tastes. And he is challenging us in his own statement to feel the same way. Preach the gospel. Live for the gospel. Live for the, for the beauty and the glory of Jesus who died on the cross for our sins to not only take away our sins, but to unite us to God and provide for us all the riches in heaven. Preach that gospel and nothing else matters. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten because no other list is important. That's where unity comes from. Next thing we see is that unity is energized by diversity. Look at what it says in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. What, what Paul's going to do in chapter 4 as he continues to do, is going to dig in a little bit more specifically in a moment. We'll look at it to a few different kinds of gifts. But before he does that, he wants to establish that everyone receives spiritual gifts. Now, if you're in a different, from a different environment, maybe more of a, a corporate environment, you may use, you've heard the word strengths. But this reminds us as followers of Jesus that these strengths, even if they come to us at birth, are truly the reflection or the result of the giftedness that Christ provides for us. 
it's a very important thing for us to understand that each one of us have a gift. Here, here's one of the reasons why it's so important to unity as well. One of the most divisive elements of any organization, a church, a business, a team, uh, your family, is that you think everyone else should be just like you. And so when someone is really good at something that, that is the same as you are, and they're really bad at what you are really bad at, you don't notice it really well, as, as much, right? If someone's bad at the things you're bad at, you're like, well, that's no big deal. Who cares, right? But if they're bad at something you're really good at, I did my preposition wrong, I just realized. If they're, if they're bad at something that you also struggle, I'm still going to do it wrong. I don't know how to say that right. Um, you get what I'm saying. Uh, so I'll, I'll, get, um, I'll get Jane to tell me how to say that correctly more later. But so if someone struggles with something that you struggle with, right? That's one thing. But if, if they are really, really bad at something you're really good at, you notice that, don't you? You notice the person who when they, if you're a good public speaker, I'm, I'm just going to tell you the truth. I, I, I do a lot of public speaking, both here and in my other world. I notice a lot of mistakes when other people public speak. I can see it quicker than most people can see it. Um, and I know them when I make them. I say, you probably notice them too, of course, but I notice them. If you are a musician, what do you notice when other people play music? You see it, right? If you're an artist, it's the same way. Because of the, the reality that we're all different, that God has gifted us in different ways, we have a tendency to not, not value other people who have different gifts. But what Paul is teaching us is that that is a source of unity, not a cause of division. Because we're all different. We all have different strengths. We all have different gifts. Um, for some of us, there are things that we do that are really easy for us. As a matter of fact, let me give you just a little bit. This is kind of the, the footnote or uh, anybody remember pop-up videos from VH1? Anybody? Anybody? Okay. It's going to be like your little pop-up video moment. So for, for trying to find your strengths, how do you find your strengths? Well, one of the things you do is you find something you, you're really good at, Right? And it needs to be something you're really strong in, you're really equipped to do. And, and not only are you really equipped to do it well, but other people notice it. So that's kind of the second thing. This is your pop-up video. First one is find something that you're, you feel like you're good in. But it's also something that other people acknowledge that you're good in. Because you may be okay about it, but if other people begin to know it, then you probably are really good in it. But the third thing is that you really love to do it. You really enjoy it. There are things that I can do really well that I absolutely can't stand to do. You have anything like that? I just can't stand them. I have been offered promotions based on them. I have been offered accolades based on them. But I pray to God sometimes every day that he would allow me to be in a role in life that I don't have to do them. But there are other things that you and I do that we're good at, other people have said we're good at, they've recognized our strength in it, and we absolutely love to do them. And when we acknowledge that, I look, at, I look at someone like my wife, who's very crafty and who's very gifted at uh, making things with her hands and also very good at uh, counseling and, and really going deep. And I look at her and I value her for that strength. And I don't pay attention so much to her weaknesses. And I allow her to be strong in the way she's strong. And I allow you to be strong in the ways you're strong. And you allow me to be ways, strong in the ways I'm strong. You don't ask me if I am a hand to be a foot or to be good at being a foot. And you don't look at me if I'm a hand and say, why aren't you good at walking, Lance? I'm not supposed to be good at walking. I'm a hand. 
When we understand that, the result is unity. When you understand that in your company, in the church, in your family, not everyone is supposed to be great at everything. As a matter of fact, this text teaches us what Paul is teaching us is you're going to be, God has gifted you. God has created you to be a 10, a genius at something. Isn't that awesome? And that's not just through your flesh or through your DNA or your biology. That is through the Spirit of God working through you. God has created you to be great at something. And because of that, this way it always works, you suck at something too. And that's okay. And it should be okay when we watch everyone around us struggle too. Unity comes from understanding that. I got to go fast. I do want you to see this quote, though, from a guy named Seth Godin. It's really good. It helps us kind of understand where success and where, where, where some great things come from. He says this, They do not understand that excellence isn't about working extra hard to do what you're told. It's about taking the initiative to do work you decide is worth doing. Please stop waiting for the map. We reward those who draw maps, not those who follow them. He says that in context of teaching how important it is for us to find our gifts, find our strengths, and live within them. The next thing is unity describes our mission. We're not going to look at it too much for the sake of time, but if you look at Ephesians chapter 4 and you keep, keep reading, in verses 9 through 10, it says, In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens. Why? That he might feel all things. Now, this little phrase, might feel all things, is a bit of a code in the book of Ephesians and it speaks to the mission or the purpose of all of time. If you remember in chapter 1, uh, I think it's in verse 10, uh, where Paul describes the whole purpose of the universe. The whole purpose of all of existence is so that Jesus Christ would be the head of all things and all things would be in unity with him and that through his presence he would feel all things, which means he would, his presence would permeate all things and he would control and dominate all things. He says something similar as he keeps going. Uh, later in chapter 4 and verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. How much to the measure of the stature of what? The fullness of Christ. Unity comes from having the same mission. This is the mission of God. It's not our mission. It's not the church's mission per se. It's God's mission, and we join him in his mission. Unity comes from that. Unity also drives our strategy. We see in verse 11 uh, through 12, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And then in, later in, in verse 16 towards the end, when each part is working properly, um, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What does Paul teach us? He teaches us that God has given us a strategy, it's the church, to accomplish his mission. And when we work within that strategy, unity is the result. What he teaches us here is that God gave us these leadership gifts. Literally, it says he gave some. So he gave everyone gifts. Remember that in the previous few verses? He gave everyone gifts, and he gave some these four gifts. Uh, if you see five there, we can follow up later just to explain why there's only four. But he gave these four gifts to some people for a very specific purpose. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherding teachers or the pastoring teachers. Those are the four gifts. Why do those four gifts exist? They exist uniquely to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. 
Uh, that work of the ministry is a work that's also used in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 5, to speak of spiritual gifts. So you could almost say it this way. Jesus gave the gifts related to leading in the church and teaching in the church. Why? To equip the saints to do their gifts well. So some people focus on the body, helping the body grow and, and, and uncover and discover their gifts and then to live within their gifts with strength. That's the, the strategy of the church. And what is the church supposed to do with their gifts? They're supposed to build the body of Christ. Help us stay healthy and grow. And, and, and then it, it gets at the end of uh, this, this paragraph that we're working through at chapter, in, in chapter 4, verse 16b. What's going to happen when all this works well? When each part works properly or when, when each part is active, when every individual in this room Every individual that's a part of the community of Restoration Church is active. Not coming and sitting in a chair and watching someone use their gift. Today we got to see the band use their gifts in amazing ways. And it may not be great at it, but you're seeing me use my gift. You see Will use his gifts. You've seen others use their gifts in this space. We, this isn't being the church. Watching other people use their gifts is not being the church. Being the church is you activating your gift in service of the mission of Jesus out in the city. Man, I wish I could go there a little bit longer, but we're going to keep going. Last thing. Real unity lives off, is what I'm going to say uh, to make this uh, correct, lives off the air of the gospel. Look at what it says in verse 13. This is kind of our goal, remember, if you remember how the text kind of works out. Our goal is, until we attain to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God. So that's what our goal is, unity of the faith. So we all believe and have faith in Christ in the same way. And we all have a relational experience with the Son of God. That's what the goal is. That's what it means to be a mature man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children. So the opposite of maturity, he's defined what maturity is. Maturity is faith in the gospel and a relational experiential knowledge of God. That's what he defined what being a mature person is. And he says that's what it means there, the fullness of Christ to, to permeate you as an individual, you as a body of Christ locally and the body of Christ throughout the world. That's the goal. That's the mission of Jesus. But the opposite of that, the thing we have to pre pre prevent from happening if we want to experience in that is, is we can no longer be children or literally infants tossed to and fro by the ways and carried, uh, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. This is the same word that he's going to use later. Uh, see if you remember this when we get to Ephesians 6, when he talks about um, the prince and princes and principalities of the air using deceitful schemes against us. What he's saying is, is that the teaching, the ideas, the thoughts that come into our mind that are against the gospel that he's been teaching in chapter 1, verse 3, when those things, when we encounter those in our mind, whether through the teachings of others, through books, whether through spirits that speak into our minds, our own temptations of doubt, when we encounter those, they lead us away from maturity. But instead of that, Instead of all those deceitful schemes, speaking the truth. And the truth is it, speaking the truth in love. When we read this, usually we say, I think we have a tendency to think this means I'm going to speak the truth, the harsh truth in love. So I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you that you're ugly, you're fat, and you need to, you need to you put on more deodorant, but I'm going to do it with love. That's not what this is talking about at all. This is talking about the gospel. When he uses the word truth, he's talking about again what he said in chapters one through three. Speak the gospel. That should be characterized by love. The gospel is characterized by love. 
speak the gospel to each other? How do you combat both our spiritual attacks, the, the thoughts that get jammed in our heads by our enemy about who we are when we're really in Christ? How do we combat them? We speak to each other the gospel. And the gospel should be characterized by love. And when we do that, we grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So I want to real quickly review the points we went over, and then we'll wrap it up. Unity can only exist on the foundation of humility. I'm going to write these in a little bit different way. But hopefully there'll be some practical principles that you can apply to your marriage, you can apply to your organization. Unity can only exist on the foundation of humility. The second thing we said is that unity is a reality based on our beliefs and values. Third thing is unity is energized by diversity. Fourth, unity is the result of a shared mission. Fourth, your strategy must reflect your unity, mission, and diversity. Before I read the last one, all that sounds like a good plan, right? If you like to read business books, you've probably read this in a business book. Nothing new. Except for that last piece. Our hope for unity, whether in your company, in this nation, your family or your marriage has no hope without the gospel. None of this can exist without the field of the gospel. It is only through the power of Christ living in us 